It's February 1957, and the Museum of Primitive Art is unveiling its first-ever exhibit. At a glance, you might mistake the gallery for the Museum of Modern Art, which is just down the block. Stark lighting, minimalist design, but the objects on display aren't modernist sculptures. They're wooden masks from Nigeria, stone figures from the Aztecs, carvings from Tahiti. The very term primitive art might seem backwards and racist, but that perception of non-Western cultures as less developed is exactly what this museum is fighting against. This is the first time that non-Western art is being treated as art, something to be admired, not just studied. The museum's founder, Nelson Rockefeller, tells the opening night crowd, we do not want to establish primitive art as a separate kind of category, but rather to integrate it into what is already known to the arts of man. Our aim will always be to select objects whose rare quality is equal of the work shown in other museums of art throughout the world. Listening in the audience is Nelson's 18-year-old son, Michael, the second youngest of the family's five children, just a few minutes older than his twin sister, Mary, and the most adventurous of the bunch by far. These works are a window into a world totally unlike his own, a place where art is everywhere and everything is sacred. Michael feels an inescapable pull toward this other world, to explore it, to understand it, and ultimately to be fully consumed by it. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. From abductions to prison breaks to murder to second chances, I'll embark on a journey to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet a young man who got lost between two unforgiving worlds the one he was born into, and the one he fell in love with. His name is Michael Rockefeller. Michael Rockefeller is born into a kind of privilege that's hard to comprehend. His great-grandfather, John D. Rockefeller, was literally the richest person in modern history. In 1913, his personal wealth made up 3% of the entire GDP. Adjusted for inflation, he has nearly as much money as Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Bill Gates combined. A couple generations later, Michael's father Nelson turns the family's economic power into political power. Over the years, he serves as governor of New York and vice president to Gerald Ford. For a Rockefeller, money is no object and nothing is off limits as long as you live up to the family's high expectations. But Michael doesn't share his family's taste for business or power. The only trait he inherited from his father is a love of art. Growing up, Michael spends his Saturdays visiting art dealers with his dad. By age 11, he's hanging around galleries on Madison Avenue after school. At 18, he's grown into a quiet, creative young dreamer who loves painting and wants to become an architect. Of course, Nelson Box. 
Create all the art you want in your downtime, but no Rockefeller is going to major in architecture. So Michael backs down. He studies history and economics at Harvard. He's expected to go into business or finance, a real career. But he's still itching to carve his own path. He says, I want to do something romantic and adventurous in a time and place which is about to disappear. After graduation, he does a six-month stint as a private in the army. And then he sees his chance. The director of the Harvard Film Study Center is making a documentary about the isolated Danny people in Dutch New Guinea. The Danny are still basically untouched by Western culture. And the goal of the film is to capture their way of life before it's corrupted by colonization. Michael is immediately hooked. And he figures if he joins this trip to New Guinea, he can kill two birds with one stone. His father has put him on the board at the Museum of Primitive Art, and he wants to bring back a collection for an exhibit. Something big, something no one in New York has ever seen before. Something to prove his worth. Nelson can't say no to that. So with his father's blessing, Michael signs on to the film expedition as a sound recordist. Does he have experience? No, but he has enthusiasm. When the crew arrives in April 1961, Michael is entranced from day one. In a letter to his best friend back home, he writes, The Balliam Valley is a thing of magnificent vastness, decorated with the green of the valley floor and blues of the surrounding mountains. Tones are ever-changing in the shifting light. For a 22-year-old rich kid fresh out of Harvard, everything about New Guinea is a complete change of pace. But Michael thrives. Out here, he can wake up early to watch the sunrise, devote his days to work that matters, and relax under the stars with people who don't know or care who his family is. For the first time in his life, he's free. Don't get me wrong, this isn't a vacation. The work is hard, but Michael loves it. The other crew members see him as quiet, humble, and hardworking, although a little scatterbrained. He has a penchant for photography, and he sometimes gets so distracted taking photos that he forgets to do his actual job recording sound. Truthfully, his mind is already swimming ahead to the trip's secondary purpose, scouting for artwork. During a break in filming that summer, Michael takes a trip to Azmat, an isolated region on the western coast. Azmat is a tough place to explore. There's so little dry ground amid the swamps, you have to travel everywhere by boat. Luckily, Michael Rockefeller is no ordinary visitor, so the Dutch colonial government sets him up with a guide, a 34-year-old anthropologist named René Vossing. Just a few days after they arrive in Azmat, Michael and René run into a group of men from the village of Omadesib. Michael is hoping to visit that village, but the only way to get there is by boat, so they ask the men to help them row their canoe over there. But the Omadesib are hesitant to bring visitors over, they say there's a tense situation with their neighboring village, Otschenep. So the village isn't very safe at the moment, but Michael Rockefeller isn't used to taking no for an answer, and eventually a few of the men agree to help. They make it to Omadesip a few days later, and it's clear they weren't lying about the tensions, because outside of the village school are four fish poles. Picture a tall, thin wooden pole carved into the shape of several human figures standing on top of each other. 
They're carved in honor of the dead, as a part of something called a bish ceremony. Supposedly, the spirit of the deceased would actually live inside of the pole until the ceremony was completed, at which point their spirit is released and they can move on to the afterlife. And that ceremony included ritual murder and cannibalism. See, the Azmat believe that no death is accidental. Even if someone dies from illness, it's blamed on black magic from an enemy village. And to restore the balance of the universe, an enemy has to be killed and eaten in revenge. So finding four of these bish poles in Omadesip sounds a little ominous. But according to the Dutch colonial government, by the 60s, headhunting and cannibalism no longer happen. These days, bish poles are purely a way to honor the dead. And with these four poles in Omadesip, the ceremony has already been completed. So the villagers were more than willing to sell them for a good price. Paper money is useless in Azmat, but Michael had stocked up on an endless supply of tobacco and axes to trade with. Once it's all squared away, they load the bish poles into a canoe, and Michael and Renee move on up the river to Otshinep, Omadesip's rival village. In Otshinep, they find 17 bish poles, but unlike the others, these ones are still inside the ceremonial houses, which suggests that the bish ceremony hasn't been completed yet. But Michael doesn't even seem to realize that anything's wrong. All he's thinking about is how unique these bish poles are. They have these intricate patterns carved into the sides that are unlike any other poles he's seen before. He offers to buy them, and the Ochenup agree. He hands over a sizable down payment, and they agree to meet in a few days to finish the trade. But three days later, when Michael and Renee arrive at the spot, the Ochenup are a no-show. Either they changed their minds, or they never really intended to go through with the sale in the first place. Still, by the time Michael heads back to rejoin the film crew, he has plenty of artwork to bring home, and he's hungry for more. What started out as a whim, a little post-grad adventure, is slowly growing into an obsession. On the boat back from Azmat, Michael writes a letter home that says, The Azmat is filled with a kind of tragedy. For many of the villages have reached that point where they are beginning to doubt the worth of their own culture and crave things Western. The West thinks in terms of bringing advance and opportunity to such a place. In actuality, we bring a cultural bankruptcy which will last for many years. Poverty, after all, is a relative thing. The people have for centuries lived on little besides the pulp of the sago palm and fish. Nonetheless, the Azmet, like every other corner of the world, is being sucked into a world economy and a world culture that insists on economic plenty in the Western sense as a primary ideal. Is there a hint of irony in this, coming from a kid who's only there to buy art for his daddy's museum? Of course. But it shows how complicated his relationship is with his station in life. As much as Michael's privilege and money help him along, there are expectations he has to meet, pressures to live with, all in the name of advancement and economic plenty concepts the Azmat happily live without. It even seems like, deep down, he wants to bring Azmat culture back to the West. Not just because it's beautiful, but to show everyone that there's a different way to live. Maybe even a better way. 
Over the next couple months, Michael lays out a plan for a second trip to Azmat in the fall. He makes detailed notes, places to explore, items to collect, questions to investigate. The crew wraps up filming around the beginning of September. And just as they're celebrating the end of the shoot, Michael gets news from home. His parents are divorcing, and his father already has plans to remarry. Michael immediately flies back to New York to see his family. And it's tense. Nelson has obviously been having an affair for a while, since he's essentially leaving his wife for this other woman, so most of the kids take their mom's side. But Michael tries to understand both his parents' perspectives, which puts him at odds with his siblings. When he calls his twin sister Mary, the first time they've spoken in half a year, it ends in a terrible argument. Mary does not want to hear any sympathy for their father. The whole situation is apparently bad enough that Michael doesn't want to stick around for long. Almost immediately after touching down in New York in September, he's on his way back to New Guinea. And that's the last the Rockefellers hear from Michael. Until two months later. On the morning of November 19th, Nelson gets an urgent cablegram from the U.S. State Department. Michael is missing. It's a Sunday morning in November 1961, and the Rockefeller family is gathered at their estate in Pocantico Hills, about 20 miles north of New York City. Nelson arrives with a yellow cablegram in his hand and an urgent announcement to make. Michael is missing. That's all anyone knows. It's horrible news, but Nelson isn't panicked. Nelson Rockefeller never panics. He's already making plans to fly to New Guinea and help with the search, which he's sure will be over in no time. Michael's twin sister, Mary, is the only one who speaks up. She says, I want to go with you. Nelson and Mary book a flight to San Francisco. From the moment they arrive at the airport that evening, they're swarmed by reporters. Nelson tells them with complete confidence, I hope they'll find him before we get there, but at least we'll be there when they do find him. From San Francisco, they charter a plane to Hawaii, to Biak, and to Marake, a Dutch outpost just south of Azmat. Photographers and news cameras follow them every step of the way. Nobody knows what happened to Michael, but they know it'll be front page news. That's all this is to them, a juicy scoop. Finding Michael or even respecting Michael and his family, those aren't their concerns. At one point, Mary comes out of the bathroom to find a group of reporters surrounding the door, ready with questions. How does it feel knowing your brother is missing? Do you think he was eaten by sharks? Do you think he was headhunted? Cannibalized? Through it all, Nelson and Mary have to stay calm and poised. They're under a microscope, even more than usual, at a time when I can imagine all they want is to be left alone. But that was never an option, not for the Rockefellers. So they smile and say, of course we're going to find Michael, alive. Any trace of doubt or grief has to be hidden under the surface even though they don't have the slightest idea what actually happened until they arrive in Morauke. By then, it's been four days since Michael disappeared. 
Soon after they land, a few Dutch officials take the Rockefellers to meet an exhausted, sunburnt man with ropey calves and a dark mustache. Rene Vossing, Michael's guide. He was the last known person to see Michael alive, and he tells the family everything he can remember. Renee had joined Michael at the beginning of this second trip. It was supposed to be 10 weeks, traveling alone to the most remote and uncharted parts of Azmet to collect more art. On the first trip, they'd traveled by canoe, but Michael is impatient. He wants to find a motorboat so they can move faster. By chance, not long after he arrives in late September, he runs into this Dutch patrol officer who has a catamaran. It's essentially just two canoes connected by a wooden platform and tin roof, but it has a motor. The officer agrees to sell the boat to Michael, but he warns him to be careful. It isn't that sturdy, especially on the choppy rivers. But Michael, being 23, isn't really listening. He loads up the catamaran with thousands of dollars of items for trading. Tobacco, fishing hooks, axes, everything except a radio. And they set off. Over the next five weeks, Michael and Renee blow through 25 villages along the coast, collecting hundreds of pieces of art along the way. Everything goes fine, until the morning of November 18th. Michael and Renee are traveling with two local teenagers, Simon and Leo. The water is calm when they set out down the river, but when they reach the river's mouth, the waves pick up. They try to steer through the swell, but the boat is buckling and water is pouring in over the hole. Finally, one giant wave picks up the boat and slams it forward, filling the boat with water. The motor is dead, and they're sinking. They're only about a half mile from shore, but Renee isn't a good swimmer, and Michael can't bring himself to abandon the boat, not with everything on it. His camera, his film, his notes, he can't just let it all float away. So the two teenage guides, Simon and Leo, decide they'll swim to shore to get help. They each grab an empty gas can as a sort of makeshift flotation device and jump into the river. Meanwhile, as the boat slowly fills with water, Michael and Renee move as many bags and boxes as they can onto the tin roof. Soon, they have to climb onto the roof too, but their weight throws it off balance and the boat capsizes. All the film and notebooks Michael risked his life to protect are now floating down the river and into the Arafora Sea. All through the night, Michael and Renee cling to the overturned hole while they slowly drift further and further out to sea. By dawn, they can barely see the coast on the horizon. Renee guesses that they're about three miles away from shore, but later calculations would estimate that it was closer to 10 miles. Either way, if they lost sight of the shore, they might never find their way back. So Michael says, screw it, I'm not waiting any longer. I'm swimming to shore. Renee tries to talk him out of it, but Michael insists he can do it. He's young, he's athletic, he's a strong swimmer. Renee finally says, well, okay, but I don't take any responsibility for you. At about 8 a.m., Michael ties two empty fuel cans around his waist as flotation devices just like Simon and Leo had done. He strips down to his underwear and jumps into the water. The last thing he says to Renee is, I think I can make it. He swims into the distance until his head is just a microscopic dot on the horizon, 
and then he disappears. Later that afternoon, Renee sees a plane circling overhead. Simon and Leo had made it to shore after all, and now the Dutch Royal Air Force is out trying to find them. Renee is rescued from the overturned boat, but four days later, no trace of Michael has been found. I know what you must be thinking, he drowned, but the Royal Air Force planes have very advanced radar, and if Michael was in the water, dead or alive, they probably would have found something by now. 10 miles is not a short swim, but it's hardly impossible either. In fact, a Dutch admiral tells the Rockefellers they'd once put a sailor into the water with two empty fuel cans as an experiment, and he managed to swim pretty fast. So it's totally possible that Michael did make it to shore. After hearing all this, Nelson is confident as ever that they'll find Michael alive. The locals are friendly, everyone insists. If they see Michael, they'll definitely bring him back to safety. But to Mary, there's something about Renee's story that seems a bit off. She noticed that as he spoke, his eyes kept darting to the Dutch officials in the room, like he was unsure of what he was supposed to say. Like he isn't being totally honest. The Rockefellers brush it off, but as the search continues, even Nelson's positivity starts to waver. It's an almost primeval area, an area of treacherous swamps and impenetrable underbrush. There was no sign of the governor's famous broad grin. Still, he expressed optimism as he talked with a Dutch official who came out to give him the latest word on the search, even though that word was, and still is, completely negative. The next day, day five after Michael disappeared, the Australian government sends helicopters to join the search. The Dutch Royal Air Force and Navy are still scouring the seas. Even Nelson and Mary board a seaplane and scour the coastline. And later that day, a patrol ship finds something close to shore, an empty red gasoline can. Renee says it looks like the one Michael took with him. He can't be sure, but if it is Michael's, it means he probably made it to shore. So the search party's focus switches from the water to the land. More than 6,000 locals from all over Azmat join the effort. Every inch of the jungle is scoured, but nobody finds anything. And as the days pass, it seems like if Michael really made it onto shore, there's only one possibility left. Maybe he doesn't want to be found. I know, it's hard to fathom why a young man with the world at his feet would want to run away into the jungle. But consider what Michael wrote after his first trip to Azmat. He was horrified at the thought of their culture being swallowed up by his own. He referred to Western advancement as cultural bankruptcy. Consider another letter he wrote on November 16th, two days before his boat capsized. It says, The Azmat artist enjoys some real advantage over the artist of the Western world. The Azmat is a culture where art is a necessary and integrated element. There can be no war, no feasting without the expenditure of tremendous effort on the part of the sculpture. Thus, as long as the culture is intact, art will flourish. This is exactly what Michael has been longing for. Back home, art and his daily life aren't just separate, they're incompatible. As soon as he gets back, the fun's over. He'll have to devote the rest of his life to a business career he never really wanted. To the pursuit of money, 
even though he's seen how happy you can be living on nothing. And to the Western world that's trying, with all its might, to destroy this world. What if he stumbled onto shore, saw helicopters flying overhead, weighed the pros and cons, and decided, this is my way out? It's too strange for the Rockefellers to even think about. Besides, with the massive manhunt by air, sea, and land, where would Michael hide if he wanted to? They scoured every inch of Azmat without finding a trace of him. By the end of day five, a Dutch official says, there is no longer any hope of finding Michael Rockefeller alive. Day six, they stop searching the waters. Day seven, smoke is seen in the jungle near where Michael disappeared. Day eight, it turns out to be some locals making a campfire. Day nine, Nelson Rockefeller tells the press, we have to face realities. Maybe it's the stress of keeping a happy face for the cameras, or the embarrassment of holding on to hope when everyone around you is saying there's no way he's alive, or the shame of being one of the most powerful men in the world and knowing there's nothing you can do to save your son. Whatever the reason, just nine days after Michael disappeared, Nelson accepts that Michael will never be found. He thanks the Dutch for their work. He and Mary get on a plane, they leave New Guinea and never come back. Just like that, they close the door on their grief. They'll take this misfortune in stride like the Rockefellers always do. Never admit failure. Never show weakness. When Mary gets home, she runs straight into her mother's arms and sobs. Her mother pushes her away and says, you must get a hold of yourself, Mary. The one thing we cannot do now is cry. After every tragedy, there comes a point where you have to return to everyday life. Not necessarily move on, but at least carry on. Go back to work, reconnect with your friends, learn to live with the fact that the person you're missing isn't there and possibly never will be. There's no right time for this moment to come. It's different for everyone, but for me, it's probably not day nine, especially with so many questions still unanswered. The official story, the one the Rockefellers chose to believe is that Michael drowned. But apart from the empty gas can, not a single trace of Michael was found in the water. Not a bone, not a scrap of clothing. The radar on the Royal Air Force planes almost certainly would have found something if Michael had drowned. But not a single blip. And yet, after just a few days, the Rockefellers are ready to stop looking. And the Dutch government is practically shoving them out the door telling them it's hopeless. And the tragedy is, if Nelson and Mary had stayed in New Guinea for just a few more days, they might have found out the truth. Remember how I said that the locals from all over Azmat were helping with the search? Well, there was one village that didn't participate, Ochenep, the same people who had scammed Michael out of the bishpoles over the summer. There's this Dutch missionary, Cornelius van Kessel, who's been living in Azmat for six years. If there's any Westerner who's trusted and accepted by the locals, it's him. And Father Van Kessel noticed that no one from Ochenep was out and about during the entire nine-day search. 
In fact, whenever a plane or helicopter flew over the village, everyone would scatter into the jungle to hide. Then, right after the Rockefellers leave, Van Kessel starts hearing bits and pieces of rumors. Supposedly, someone from Ochenep had killed a white man. Van Kessel sends his assistant to Ochenep to get to the bottom of this. The villagers deny everything. They say they don't know what these rumors are about, but they seem kind of cagey. And then, one of the men gets up and tears through the village, screaming to everyone who will listen that he didn't say anything about anything. And then, he sprints off into the jungle. A little suspicious. A week later, he apparently has a change of heart. He and a friend go to Omadesip and meet with Van Kessel's colleague, Father Von Pye. They're ready to tell the truth. Michael Rockefeller had been killed and eaten. The official line that headhunting doesn't happen anymore? That's not exactly true. The Dutch had been trying to root out headhunting for years, often brutally and without much success. Three years before Michael's disappearance in early 1958, there was a violent dispute between the villagers of Omadesip and Ochenep. The government controller in Azmat, Max Lepre, sends some officers to tell them to knock it off. And the villagers basically say no. So Lepre goes to Ochenep himself to teach them a lesson. He arrives with a full force of armed police officers. Things go sour quickly. And Lepre's officers start shooting. By the time it's over, the officers have killed five people. Five of the most important leaders in the village. The survivors never forget it. Those bish poles that Michael had tried to buy from the Ochenep, it's likely that they were carved in honor of the five victims. The poles were still standing three years later because their deaths still hadn't been avenged. They would have to kill a Tuan, a white man, to even the score. And after what happened with Leprey, they were all too afraid to try it. Until the morning of November 20th, 1961, the day after Michael went missing. A group of men from Ochenep are rowing near the mouth of the river. They see what they think is a crocodile floating in the water, but when they get closer, it's Michael. One of the men says to another, you're always talking about headhunting twans. Well, here's your chance. After a little bit of argument, they decide to do it. They lift Michael into their canoe and stab him with a spear. From there, they take him back to shore, make a big fire, and cannibalize him. One of the men takes Michael's head and hangs it up in his house. Another takes his thigh bone and carves it into a dagger. Nothing goes to waste. After Father Von Pye hears this story about the Ochenep, he meets up with Van Kessel. They compare notes on what they've heard, and it all fits together. 26 days after Michael goes missing, Van Kessel sends a report to the Dutch controller in Azmat. It says in all caps, It is certain that Michael Rockefeller was murdered and eaten by the Ochenep. This is the worst possible news the Dutch government could receive and the worst possible moment to receive it. They're in the middle of a heated dispute with Indonesia about which country should have control of Western New Guinea. The Dutch obviously don't want to hand over the land, 
but the U.S. is pushing hard for them to do it. So the Dutch desperately need two things right now. One, American allies. And two, to look like they have their colony under control. What they desperately don't need is a story about the Azmat killing and eating a Rockefeller. So after receiving this report, the governor of New Guinea sends a cable to the Dutch Minister of the Interior. It's marked secret and destroy. Some of it is destroyed, but the part that survives in the government archive says, It doesn't seem germane to me to give this information to the press or Rockefeller Sr. This will gain us some time and would enable us to pick a more favorable moment for publication. That same day, the governor also fires off a cable to Nelson Rockefeller. This one says, The entire area has been extensively searched. Even any rumors were thoroughly investigated. I regretfully have to inform you of my decision to end the unsuccessful search, as I feel that not anything more can be done. And with that one little lie, the Rockefellers give up any remaining hope of finding Michael. They never get the investigation they deserve, all because the truth is too inconvenient for the press to get their hands on. Behind the scenes, the Dutch spend the next few months investigating the rumors of the Ochsenep, and by all accounts, they seem to be true. The next spring, some men from Ochsenep finally turn over what they claim is Michael's skull. I say claim because after the skull is sent to Holland for testing, it's never seen or heard about again. Meanwhile, the missionary who brought these rumors to attention, Father Van Kessel, is sent home to the Netherlands with clear instructions to never speak a word of what he knows. The bishop actually sends a letter to his new boss that says, I rely on you to forbid Van Kessel to go to America and to forbid him to correspond with the family Rockefeller too. But naturally, even with all this secrecy, the rumors still get out. The new priest in Azmat hears the same story from the locals. Somehow, a letter he writes about it leaks to the press. In March 1962, the story is blasted out on the AP wires. Michael Rockefeller allegedly eaten by cannibals. Nelson obviously hears about it. He contacts the Dutch embassy, probably baffled, and the very next day, he gets a response. The rumors are completely unfounded. They've investigated it thoroughly, and there is absolutely no reason to think Michael was eaten. Nelson believes it. Everyone does. It's the Dutch government's word against what everyone sees as a backwoods priest. The very next day, newspapers across the world retract the story. Really, I think that at the end of the day, the Rockefellers wanted the same thing as the Dutch government. A neat, clean ending. An answer that's not too complicated or scandalous. Something they can quietly put behind themselves and move on from. Because as the months pass, and the updates from New Guinea trickle out into silence, the Rockefellers cling to the neat answer. Michael drowned. His remains are somewhere at the bottom of the Arafora Sea. There's nothing more they could have done. That spring, they hold a memorial service at a church in Pocantico Hills. The church already has two stained glass windows in memory of Nelson's late parents. And after the service, Nelson commissions a third, in honor of Michael. The window depicts the crucifixion of Jesus, 
against a backdrop of wave-like blue curves. It's titled, Seek and Ye Shall Find. The hundreds of objects Michael collected are recovered and shipped to New York. His rolls of film are ruined, but one of his waterlogged journals is still legible. With the help of his detailed notes, the items are cataloged and put on display in the Museum of Primitive Art. Within a few months, the exhibit has been covered in more than 600 newspapers and magazines across the country, which the museum reports is as close to national and local saturation as any art story ever had. It's such a success that in 1969, the collection moves a mile and a half up the street to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. After years of debate, the Met finally agrees to display the Rockefeller's collection of non-Western art. It's a landmark decision for such a major museum, where so-called primitive art had never been included. The collection will be housed in the newly built Michael C. Rockefeller Wing, which Mary is in charge of overseeing construction on. By the time the new wing finally opens in 1982, it's been nearly 21 years since Mary lost her twin, but he seems as close as ever. She later writes that walking among the collection on opening night, she experienced Michael's life transmuted into a perpetuating gift. The Rockefellers never find a body, but they do find a narrative they can live with. Michael risked his life to show the Azmat culture to the world. That story gives Michael's life and death purpose. So they ignore the tiny cracks in the story, the rumors, the details that don't quite add up, the suspicion that the very culture Michael dedicated his life to documenting was also responsible for his death. They ignore Milt Macklin, a journalist who in 1974 tracks down Father Van Kessel and publishes his account of what really happened to Michael. Macklin sends a letter to the Rockefellers. The family's lawyers send him back an impersonal boilerplate letter. Thanks for writing. No further comment. They ignore Carl Hoffman, who, in 2012, travels all the way to Ochsenep to speak with the villagers firsthand. He digs through government archives to find the cables and letters that were buried for 50 years, which leave zero doubt that there was a cover-up. Mary Rockefeller doesn't even respond to Hoffman's letters. He's told by a family friend. The family refuses to believe any version of the story beyond his drowning. I'll be honest, this refusal to hear the truth was hard for me to wrap my head around, and it's part of what makes this story so unique. Here's a family with all the resources in the world, unlimited money, a direct line to international governments. They could have excavated the entire island if they wanted to. They could have hired a private investigator or gone to New Guinea themselves or at least spoken to any of the many people who claimed to know what happened. But they didn't. Or maybe, in a way, they couldn't. Because of their money and prestige. From day one, finding Michael was literally an international crisis. Nelson was well-versed enough in politics to understand what was at stake. I don't know if he realized the Dutch were lying to him, but he must have realized, at a certain point, Everyone needed him to go home. Thank the Dutch for their work and let this story die. It was easier that way, 
for the Dutch, for the Rockefellers, and maybe even for Michael. Because the truth wouldn't bring him back. It wouldn't bring justice. All it would do is turn Michael's legacy into a punchline. But I don't know if it's fair to reduce Michael to his privilege and his family name. He was genuinely trying, in his clumsy, 23-year-old way, to bridge the gap between these two worlds. Two places he loved, but would never belong. And in the end, he disappeared into that gap. Next episode, when 20-year-old Everett Roos goes missing in the canyons of the American Southwest, time turns him into a mythical folk hero. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 40 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance from Trent Williamson and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Kate Gallagher, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 